0: Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. What determines your identity? What makes you who you are? If I were to ask you, who are you? There's probably a list of things that we would say if we had time to think about it, but the options are so vast today, I couldn't possibly list them all. An increasing number of people find their identity in their sexuality, in their race or their culture, even um, their career choice, their athletic abilities, their prowess as parents, their accomplishments, their national identity, all these kinds of things. But what if... Rather than searching for our identity, rather than having to go out and find ourselves, what if identity was something we were never meant to determine within ourselves? What if God's intention for us as our creator was to give us our identity rather than leaving us languishing in this endless, desperate search just to find out who we really are? There are all kinds of voices in our ears, mainly our own, trying to tell us who we ought to be or can be, and the weight of trying to find or discover our identity can be exhausting for many of us. But what if no other voice but God's, including our own, determined who we really are? What if we were defined by the person and work of another What if our identity is inextricably bound to God's purpose for creation in Christ Jesus, and God has already told us who we are? Our identity is the result of God's grace, which means our purpose in life is cosmic in its scope. Who we are right now and what each of us is called to do in our daily lives or our vocations is tied directly to God's purpose for all creation. So what if we didn't need to worry about being or doing or becoming, but only needed to believe by faith that we are who God says we are? Oh, how the enemy wants to keep us from believing that, because then we would actually be free. And neither he nor our flesh or anyone else would have any leverage over us. We'd be all gods and only gods. Through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling His plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in His Son by building the church to be His one dwelling place on the earth. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I praise You for Your Spirit. I ask You for His anointing and His power in these moments to preach the Word of God in truth In humility and in boldness, Father, I ask You to overcome and overwhelm me for Your name's sake in these moments. God, I ask that You would open the ears of everyone who has come to hear, to understand, to believe Your Word. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to start in verse 11 of chapter 2 in Ephesians. Therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what you were. Many, if not all of the Ephesian Christians to whom Paul is writing were not ethnic Jews. They were Gentiles in the flesh. In fact, that's how they were marked when it came to God and His revelation to mankind in the world. They were known by that. They were known as being non-Jewish, mainly by those who were God's people under the old covenant, the Jews, ethnic Jews. In fact, Gentiles were even called by that. They were called the uncircumcision by the Circumcision. So their identity before Christ was in what they were not and what they did not have. Jews looked down on them for not being Jewish, for not having the favor of God like they did as a nation. Jews had the sign of circumcision. The males did, the firstborn males, as evidence that they were in this covenant God had made. And Gentile Gentiles did not have that, at least not for religious purposes. So, as proof then, let's remember where we are in the text. As proof of chapter 2, verse 9, that we will boast about what even is a gift to us, that's how the Jews treated the Gentiles. Do you see the point in the flow of Paul's argument? They looked down on them, they boasted in themselves about what God had graciously given to them, because he had not given that yet, or that sign at least to the Gentiles, but since God doesn't want anyone to boast, we've now discovered, because He favors them, God designed true salvation, full salvation, actual redeeming salvation to come by grace through faith alone in our Lord Jesus Christ. So part of the reason God plans to unite all things in Christ and in no other thing we're finding here is to prohibit any group from standing in distinction from another nobody has anything to boast about any more nobody there's no advantage but there is no question that being a gentile meant alienation from god at one time they were at that time in verse 12 the time before jesus saved them gentiles were defined by their alienation from God. So when you get this list in verse 12, you're getting a list of what has been undone and changed and ended. And we'll get to that. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It's very important that that is one of the things God is reconciling through Christ. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he says it twice in verses 11 and 12. Remember, Gentile believers like us remember who you were Our identity used to be in what we were not and so we didn't have one really we We desperately needed to find one This is why grace is such a big deal because without it. We're only verses 11 and 12 That's all you can say about us with literally no hope of changing our identity remember before christ We're dead in trespasses and sins following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air following our desires. Israel at least had the right of circumcision, the kind made in the flesh by hands, that is, some type of physical sign that that somebody was looking out for you. The ceremonial kind of circumcision that didn't, if we read the Scriptures, didn't guarantee that you would stay in the covenant since it was only fleshly. All it did was mark someone as a Jewish person. So even the original rite of circumcision in the flesh was nothing to really brag about. And think of your scriptures. Ishmael was circumcised. Abraham's other, one of his other sons. Esau was circumcised. Saul was circumcised. Nadab and Abihu, who were killed for offering up strange fire by God, they were circumcised, right? Or at least one of them was. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons that were killed. So circumcision didn't save them, right? But that mark in the flesh did identify one as a Jew, the nation God favored and blessed, and Gentiles didn't have it. Now, beloved, Paul is going to completely redefine ethnicity in light of the work of Christ in this passage. Here is how this passage calls us to rethink identity and who we are and what makes us who we are. Nothing we can do to ourselves or are in ourselves, nothing we have to claim about ourselves, does anything, anything to merit God's favor now that Christ has come. What God accomplished in Christ, to which the Spirit bears witness, has completely redefined the entire world as we know it. The old world, so to speak, with all its different markers and identities and races and cultures, for all intents and purposes, it died when Jesus died. A new world began when God raised Him from the dead. There are now only two races in the world, if you want to get technical, two possible identities, saved or lost. That's it. That's how we must see the world and see ourselves in his wonderful work, Christian Dogmatics. Francis Pieper asks in volume one on the nature and character of theology, he says this, how many essentially different religions are there in the world? There are not a thousand, not even four, but only two essential different religions. The religion of the law, that is the endeavor to reconcile God through man's own works, and he um, goes on to list how other religions, he gives a few examples. It's That's basically what they're doing. And the religion of the gospel, that is, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief wrought through the gospel by the Holy Ghost that we have a gracious God through the reconciliation already affected by Christ and not because of our own works. Only two religions. Grace is powerful. The blood of Jesus is Powerful. Yes, He saves individual people, no question. But the plan of God is bigger than personal salvation. He is calling us, creating a new people in salvation through Christ, a new nation. And by doing so, God is fulfilling the one plan He's always had. He's not changing plans mid-history. This has always been the plan. He'll talk about that even more in chapter 3. And by doing so, again, he's fulfilling the one plan he's always had. Which means, beloved, national Israel's role as his people on earth under the law covenant is over. He undoes everything that once was true about us, even our ethnicity. He now seals the uncircumcised. He does it not in the flesh made by hands, but by his spirit, Romans 2 28 and 29. He makes us His one body. That's what the text says. Unites us to Himself. Makes us His own people. Makes us recipients of His covenants of promise. Us. The the things we were strangers to, now they're ours. The people that we weren't, now we are. And gives us hope since we now belong to Him. Notice when Paul starts off this section with the word, therefore, considering where Ephesians 2.10 took us into good works, when Paul starts this section off with therefore, he wants to set their framework of good works that are pleasing to God in the language of who they are, right? That's why you have therefore. God has done this for you in Christ. Therefore, first of all, remember who you were. Why? Because you are not that anymore. That's the basis of the Christian's good works. Who we are. Not who we're trying to become. We're defined now by what I have made you, God is saying to his people in this text, verse 13. But now, there's at that time, before, and now. Like we saw, but God up there in 2-4. Here we have, but now, in Christ Jesus, everything is in him. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How did we who were so far away, so alienated, so distanced, so hopeless, so lost ever get so close to God? Two, one through seven, beloved. By His grace, God put us in Christ. That's the believer's basis of everything we get from God. Of every, this is so important. Beloved, it's, it's all because we're in Christ. Whatever He gets, we get. Because of who He is, that's who we are. In Christ so deeply and truly, in fact, as we learned last week, that when God raised Him from the dead, He raised us with Him because we were in Christ. When Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, He says He brought us with Him. So, not only are our sins forgiven, that's the start of Of the great news that is ours in the Gospel. Not only are all our sins forgiven, praise His name, but our names have been changed. We are not who we were. That young man that was born at 7 something in the morning on August 16th. He wasn't a young man, he was a baby, that's weird. Born as a baby on August 16th, 1975 is, is dead. Dead for all intents and purposes. Nothing that was true about me when I was born is true now amazing what jesus has done amazing what it is to be in christ isn't that where you'd want to be we've been given an identity we've been brought into one family the blood of jesus that washes away all our sin also brings us near to god our sins are far away and we're close to him he doesn't just clear the books he does He most certainly does, beloved, but he makes those who were once only strangers and aliens and dead and wicked and belonging to Satan, his very own sons. And I don't say that to exclude the females. It's a spiritual identity. We are all sons of God. All the gifts and blessings that would come to the firstborn son come to you and I now by virtue of being in Christ, the beloved and only begotten son of God. Now, our ethnicity, our flesh, everything natural about us has nothing to do anymore with who we are. Nothing. Or whether or not we are close to God. Nearness to God is something only Christ can accomplish and grant. And He does it through His blood, not ours. Now, to what extent? That's the question. Just how close are we? Is it in theory or is it in fact? Are we really His people, you and I? Or just what He calls His people for a little while? In other words, should we spiritualize this passage? This is only talking spiritually who we are. And in the real world, there are still two peoples of God. So you have Israel and the church. Should we say, when we read this text, well, yes, Paul, yes, as it pertains to salvation... There's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, but God's plan for creation, for history, is very different. He has two different peoples, and so in that sense, there has to always remain a distinction between Israel and the church. This arrangement is spiritual, and it's only temporary. At the end of time, God will resume His plan that He had for the people that He really favors and loves. Is it? Is that the plan? Because it seems like how many peoples of God there are is a question of just how near to God someone is brought by the blood of Jesus Christ. It seems like in the text that the blood of Jesus is what decides how many people of God there are, doesn't it, when we look at it? It's a question of of how near we are to Him through blood. everything turns now, as we're about to continue reading in 14 through 18 everything here that gentiles had that that or that gentile Christians have doesn't turn on ethnicity it turns on the blood of Jesus look at this in verse 14 through 18 for so this is the explanation of being brought near so he's saying you've been brought near because of what I'm about to say this is this is the description of your nearness my nearness To God, even as a Gentile believer, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both Jews and Gentile believers have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul wrote these words to describe the depth of our nearness to God as non-Jewish people who are in Christ Jesus why does he extrapolate here right isn't I mean can't you just say you've been brought you're no longer far off you've been brought near no he's he's purposely telling us the difference now in Christ as opposed to what you and I were in 11 and 12 that's what he's building off of so whatever was true in 11 and 12 is no longer true because the text turns on verse 13 the blood of Christ has brought us near. Being near means this. Means nothing in 11 and 12 is true of you anymore. Nothing that you read there. Did He bring us near as the people, but, but not as near as the people He really cares about? Well, how does the text read, right? Because this kind of Disjointed view we might have, if I can use that word, actually eats away at our identity, I think, on the inside, or has the potential to, and therefore we shouldn't be okay with it. He is our peace. What does Paul say Jesus accomplished for us by his blood? That's what matters. He is our peace in verse 14. He has made us both one. And beloved, that oneness is not temporary. Not temporary. If, and, and remember, if we are prone to boasting and God has designed all things so that no one could boast, why would he return us again after the blood of Jesus to two different groups with two different plans, one much more favored than the other? No, Jesus has broken down in his flesh, not in mine, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. That's the wall he's talking about. Our flesh does nothing but divide. His blood does nothing but bring together. Therefore, Jesus Himself is our collective peace. Since we are all in Him, we'll never again be divided unless He can be divided. And Paul has been clear elsewhere. Christ is not divided. He has made us both one. He's broken down the divisions that brought the hostility between us. Namely, here, the fact that ethnic Jews could boast because they had a different kind of favor from God in verses 11 and 12 for at least a while. And the way he did this, the way his blood did this, was by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances In verse 15. So that means, if we read the Old Testament carefully, and read the words on the page, the law and the covenant are one and the same under the Old Covenant. Exodus makes this crystal clear. So that covenant then, the one that divided us, the one that marked Jews off on their own, that's no longer enforce the covenant that did make a distinction between us and everything that went with it has been according to the Bible abolished it's not still out there that if God doesn't do this he's not keeping his word no 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 it's been kept and therefore abolished that's the scriptures word here from Paul there are not then two separate sets of promises for two different sets of people We need to read all the promises of God, all of them through the redeeming, fulfilling, reconciling work of Jesus Christ if we're going to understand his word and his will and his plan. The same author Paul reminded us in Romans 9 that not all who are descended from Israel are Israelites. That's not the way it actually works. That word Israelite in a full biblical term is a name for all of God's people in light of Christ's blood, whether they're Jew or Gentile. That's why often in the text, Paul will refer to unbelievers, so will Peter, as Gentiles, regardless of their ethnicity. Because in Christ, those words, Jew and Gentile, have received their true meaning. Abolishing is a strong word, beloved. Abolishing is a strong word for the Holy Spirit to inspire that word means it's not going to be brought back in later It's not been put on hold It's been abolished God has fulfilled it by himself in the one obedient Israelite Who can boast by the way and doesn't? Jesus Christ himself and now we might be thinking Which is fair right? But didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5.17 that He didn't... He, I have not come to abolish the law? Yes. What? Keep going. Keep going. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right? Fulfill it. The law covenant would not be set aside by God just breaking His promises and deciding not to honor it. No, no, no. It was designed as temporary... We find that in the New Testament. Jesus came to end it by fulfilling it because the word of God cannot fail. So it's not abolished in the sense that God just said, oh, never mind. No, no, it's it's been fulfilled. The conditions have been met. There was one obedient Israelite who kept the covenant. Everything God promised to Israel, if they kept it, has been kept by one Israelite. Therefore, all the promises of God are yes in that Israelite. Right? So He's not abolishing it. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20, by the way. He's fulfilling it. Therefore, it's ended. It's abolished. If something is abolished, it isn't coming back. It's not on hold. It's done, right? Jesus will get everything God promised to Israel. None of His promises will fail, since He, again, is the only one that kept it. So we get it, then, If we're reading the text, not because we've just replaced Israel as apples to oranges and God broke his promise to them, but because we are all now by the blood of Christ in Christ. So we get all these benefits. You don't go Israel church. You go Israel, Jesus, then the church. Israel's not been replaced, but Israel has been fulfilled, I believe. When Jesus fulfilled it, He ended it. Or as Hebrews 8.13 will say, made it obsolete by virtue of bringing in a new covenant, one that is superior, the Bible says, to the old. If it's superior, beloved, why is God going to go backwards in the future to what wasn't superior or better? Right? Right? The superior one, one of the reasons it's called the superior one, is precisely because it breaks down all those distinctions and gathers in, as promised to Abraham, all nations to make them one. Beloved, the new covenant is so great because it fulfills the plan, the one plan according to the text God has had all along. There's a plan for the fullness of time, not two, right? Right? God never goes back on His promises. That, that's not how the law covenant was abolished. It was abolished via fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. It was fulfilled rather than ignored. But the fact that it's fulfilled means that it's over. It's been taken care of and addressed. We, you and I, therefore, are not second-rate citizens of heaven. The church is glorious in Christ because of Christ. That would demean the whole book. If, if, if underneath Paul is saying the whole time, now you're not really as, but I mean, as it pertains to salvation, I mean, you're, yeah, you're in, but no, no, that's that's not what's going on here. Why did Jesus abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? What was the point of that in, in bringing the Gentiles near to God? Because unless God does that by His own design, He can't do what He wanted to do, because there would still be a difference. The reason he did that, the reason he did away with that law, which means also the covenant to which it was attached, is so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That's what he says. So that God might finally bring humanity back together in Christ. Remember, there's a plan being fulfilled here. In verses or in chapter one, verses seven through ten, that Paul is explaining, and what has been done in Christ is final, final. Remember, the reason he lists where we were when we were apart from God, outside of Christ, in eleven and twelve. What he's doing in fourteen through eighteen, because of verse thirteen and the blood of Christ, is explain how we are no longer what we used to be. And each of those phrases in eleven and twelve is no longer true. By virtue of the blood of Christ. We are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. No longer in Christ. We are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. No longer in Christ. We're no longer uncircumcised. We are circumcised in the heart in Christ. So, one has taken the place of two. Not just in a spiritual sense, but in every sense. There are not two peoples of God. Therefore, there is one group and they are called the bride of Christ. Or, In other words, it's not one group who is the bride of Christ and then there's another group who is called Israel. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. There is one new man that exists, and listen to the word now, in place of the two by the blood of Christ. So, we, we kind of pull back from, and I understand because it comes with a lot of baggage, right? But there's that term we really, if, if, you know, we, we think in those circles or in those, we don't like the term replacement theology. That's a bad thing. And I, I don't use that term either. I don't think it captures the whole picture, but if we wanted to get technical, you could use that word because of this verse. One new man in place of, that's replacing the two. But again, it has to be understood in light of Christ and his fulfillment so I don't like the term, I, doesn't, I don't think it captures the whole picture, but the, the idea is here, but that was the plan, right? Replacement makes it sound like God changed his mind. No, 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 no. God never changes his mind. Ever. So there's not a people for God and a people for Jesus, right? What precisely does the text say Jesus has done through his blood to these once two different peoples. That's that's very important. The blood of Christ is the center of all this. God's plan for the fullness of time then, which is what Paul has been talking about since chapter 1, 7 through 10, even when or while he was working parenthetically between Abraham and the church through national Israel to bring in the law to imprison everything and everyone together under sin to pave the way for Christ. Even when God was doing that, His one plan has always been to create in Himself one new man, one bearing His image. The body of Christ in the world as His one people forever is the plan of God for the fullness of time. All has been united in Christ through His blood. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus really is. So we we need to read the Old Testament's partial revelation in light of the New Testament's full revelation. 1 Peter 1, 10-12. Here in verse 16, Jesus has reconciled us both to God in the exact same way, at the exact same time, and in the exact same place. The cross. He has reconciled all the issues that would have required or maintained separation, taken all of them out of the way, now and in the future. Colossians 1:20. All is reconciled in Christ. All of it. So when Jesus died for us, his blood was both paying for our redemption and literally killing the hostility between us. Killing it. He's not going to revive it. It's gone. The oneness of God's people is a testimony to the power and sufficiency of Jesus' blood and the sovereign power of God to never break in any way, shape, or form any promise he ever makes, beloved. Ever. Through Christ in verse 17, God preached the same peace to both of us, those who were near and those who were at that time far off, but are not far off any longer. In verse 13, through the Son in verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do we hear all of this oneness talk, right? It's like it's so important that in our minds there is no distinction. Do we see how all the images of the differences between Jew and Gentile have been completely done away with in Christ? We don't want to even inadvertently demean or downplay that. We both have the same access, which means we're both full sons with full privileges. Nothing is any longer divided. That's what Paul says now in verses 19 through 22. For through him, or sorry, so then, right? In verse 19, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. You're not a different group. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, one household, one structure, one temple, one dwelling place. So it doesn't just deal with salvation here. Right? This is dealing with identity. right? We say that like, Like salvation in Christ is second fiddle to the Mosaic Covenant. Well, this is only talking about salvation. No, Jesus is greater than Moses. What he accomplishes is better than Moses. We are no longer anything we used to be in verses 11 and 12, and we'll never be treated like that again. Part of the miracle of the work of Christ was bringing what once was two different groups of people into one, So he's not going to split us up again once it's his own blood that has brought us together and put us in him. There's one plan for one body, right? We are now fellow citizens, members of God's one household in verse 19. And this house that has everyone in it belongs to Christ. It's built on one foundation, the apostles and the prophets, the old and the new. Do you see that? The old and the new. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, the prophets in the Old Testament weren't testifying to something different and separate than the apostles in the New Testament are. right? Do do we see that in the text? There is one plan and both bore witness to it on one foundation. So that what grows out of this plan is one people, one temple, one dwelling place. One foundation built on one cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. And in Christ Jesus, this is the importance of this oneness and this unity, this one structure, all of it, everyone in it, now that it has been joined together in one person, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, we're always growing. We, 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 it's just, we think of that in terms of numbers. The church could be growing when it's, there's less people coming. That could be what's happening. Could be. You never know, right? It's hard to say. But like, like, think, think about it like this. You wouldn't consider yourself to be growing if you, you grew a third arm. Right? Something would be wrong. You wouldn't be like, oh, awesome, I've got a third arm. Like, no, what is wrong with my body? Right? So, And this is where the letter, from here on out, is going to start to get a little bit practical. That really won't come until 4. But Paul is also going to redefine our understanding of growth in a church. Because according to the text, the church is growing all the time, or should be. So we'll, we'll get to that when the time comes. But growing into a holy temple in the Lord because all are in Christ. So nothing they try to rebuild in the earthly Jerusalem, which is, by the way, in slavery according to Galatians, is anything compared to the one true temple that God is building on the foundation who is Christ. Right? Jesus is the temple. Therefore, we grow up in Him. That isn't different here. This isn't different from what Jesus was saying in John's Gospel, where he refers to himself as the temple, remember that, destroy this temple. No, this text more fully explains the ramifications of that. Because Paul here is telling us that's who we are, and, and that we're this temple, we're this dwelling place. Well, where are we? We are in Christ. So he's just explaining the words of Jesus for us by the Holy Spirit. Because the true temple, who is Christ, is made up on earth not of bricks and mortar but by those who have been brought near Jew and Gentile by the blood of Christ back in chapter 1 verse 23 also this one body we the church are the fullness of the one who fills everything 123 in whom all God's promises are yes and amen in second corinthians 120 So, God is building His temple in Christ. And in Christ, not only are we a holy temple in the Lord, in verse 22, we are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to say the same thing twice in two different ways in 21 and 22, so that his point is crystal clear. There is not now, nor will there ever be again, any separation between Jews and Gentiles and God's plan to make them one in Christ. This is who we are, beloved. That's who you are. That's who you are, believer. Through His Son, God means to dwell in His people by His Spirit. Do you know what this is? Not necessarily the building, and I know we gather in it. I have no issue with that. In a sense, of course, this building is the church, but that's because it's where the church gathers The dwelling place of God on the earth. That's what this is. And He has hundreds of thousands of them. The same God dwelling in each one of them. Redeemed, saved, victorious, sealed. So that, as the practical part of Ephesians, the implications of this will show. So that we may walk as His one body in the works prepared for us. By Christ. There is one Christ. There is one people. And that is how God accomplishes His one plan. To unite all things literally, literally in His Son. Jesus makes the church glorious. Now, listen one more time. At least today, to verses 7-10 through 10 of chapter 1. Remember these words. In Him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And he's talking to Jewish and Gentile believers now, mainly Gentile ones, making known to us the mystery of his will. So this wouldn't have been discernible in the past, right? The fact that this was always the plan, that was a mystery before. It's not any longer, right? making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So what He's talking about has always been the plan, beloved. God has not changed His mind. He's just worked through means to roll out His plan and unveil His mystery as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth earth. So the fact that everything now comes together and is one in Christ is the plan. To separate these things, or to separate the people who are in Christ, beloved, we, we don't want to go there. right? That isn't the plan. God's one plan and purpose for the fullness of time has Christ and only Christ at the center of it. The redemption of sinners takes a back seat to nothing and no one. It is the goal for History the creation of the church by grace doesn't just serve a temporary purpose for some parenthetical period of time where God quits focusing on Jews for a while to focus on Gentiles. No, that dishonors the work of Christ. Makes little of His blood. Scripture describes the purpose of redemption, of salvation through Christ at the cross as serving God's one plan for all the fullness of time itself past Present and future, that is, is what the fullness of time means. What Jesus accomplished in redemption fulfills the initial promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3, as well as God's promise to Abraham to be the family through whom that seed would come and therefore bless all the nations. That was God's promise before anything else happened through that seed in Genesis chapter 12. Jesus Tore down the walls of division that existed in an earthly sense, so that there would no longer be any notion of division anywhere in who is called God's people. That's very important. The blood of Christ is why that matters. Not just ethnically as it pertains to now who can get saved and who can belong to God, but in terms of how we understand what God is doing in creation and human history, that's really the overall point of the letter to the Ephesians. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, He is building one place for God to dwell forever on the earth. One people, the church. So He's not going to flip that at the very end and go back to separating the two of us. That's not going to happen, The end of all these differences and the, resulting, the end of the resulting hostility and separation, beloved, that is the Bible's evidence of the victory of Jesus Christ and the proof that He reigns over all, everything. Through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling His plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in His Son by building the church to be His one dwelling place on the earth. Life and identity are found only in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, which is what most of us probably are, we have to realize this too. We have to realize this too. You aren't who your spouse says you are. You aren't who your boss says you are. You aren't who your teachers say you are. Or your co-workers, or your students, or your enemies, or your political opponents, or sociologists say you are. Not anymore. Jesus Christ has swallowed up everything into Himself and no one but Christ has a claim on you now. No one and nothing. Beloved, what he has done is so much more comprehensive than just addressing our sin problem. And I don't want to downplay that, but I'm just saying it gets, there's even more. He came to save us from the vanity of this world. The endless desperation of trying to use the world and use other people to save us, to define us, to give us meaning, to give us validity, to give us affirmation. Our creator has done this for us. The one that made us from the dust has done this for us. And when we ran from him and rebelled against him, rather than casting us off and throwing us away, He enacted the plan He had from the foundation of the world to send His Son to redeem us and bring us back to Him. Hope for real reconciliation in the world and the one to come is found in one person, Jesus Christ. Hope for identity is found in one gift, His salvation. We must all lose ourselves in Him. Repent of our sins. Have them all washed away by His blood. Cling to Him by faith. is our only peace and salvation. That is what God is doing in the world. This is why we exist as Moundsville Baptist Church. Do you see the danger we pose to ourselves if we're all still trying to establish our own identity as Christians? All we're ever going to be is at war with one another over preferences and traditions. And I'm telling you, this is meant to be better than that. We've been swallowed up. We've been swallowed up into Christ. Let that give you peace. You can stop fighting to make yourself a name. You've been given one. There is a seat at the eternal feast with your new name on it. Rest. We don't have to win. Like, we don't have to conquer other people in our lives and subdue them to do our will. And, oh, beloved, if we would just lean into Christ and believe the text and and take God at His word, stop striving to make your own name. Stop listening to all the voices that demand you to, you know, to, to try to be enough. I mean, it never stops. The religion of the law as justification is everywhere. Everywhere. Stop listening to all the ones that make demands on you and come to Jesus. Because He won't just make you new. He'll make you His forever. He promised it.